message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Would you open your Bible to Luke 14? Luke 14, we're looking at a passage. Uh, we have two weeks left in this series about uh, uh, decreasing the more of Christ and less of me, and we kind of will end with a crescendo, I hope. Uh, I gave you kind of the, the forewarning a couple weeks ago by telling you the end of the story, and that is at the end of the story, John the Baptist dies. His head is cut off. The next week, we're, we're going to look at that and how that really was not something that Jesus spared him from. It was not something that, uh, uh, as much as we have all these promises of, of the hope of, of good things in our lives, that uh, John the Baptist dies, and he dies for the gospel. Uh, but to get there, we, we really have to look at one more teaching, I think, before we kind of come to that culmination next week. And that is uh, when Christ begins to tell the people about counting the cost. One of the probably the most misunderstood parts of Christianity is that somehow God has called us to be comfortable. There is a big, big difference between being comforted in our Christianity and comforted in the gospel and being comfortable. Nowhere does Jesus tell us that, uh, that we are to strive for a life that's just comfortable. And nowhere does he promise us a life that's going to be comfortable. Comforted, yes, in the midst of fallenness and in the midst of despair and in the midst of really kind of sometimes a very evil world. So comforted, yes, and to have his peace that he knew and his joy, yes, those are the promises of God. That as we follow him and as we decrease himself and as we more and more uh, become like him, that we will experience some of those by the very fruit of God's spirit within us. And yet this whole idea that the Christian life is going to be one that is comfortable is not biblical, and it certainly was not the cornerstone of Jesus' teaching. And today's passage is, is probably going to be uh, one of those main teachings where we see Jesus really in what we would sometimes say is uncharacteristic of Jesus. We always see him being love and peace and kindness and, oh, come over here, let me give you a hug. And we kind of point at Christianity as being this, this really nice, really loving and it is loving, and, and we should be nice. And yet there was a cut. There was a razor-sharp cutting edge to the very calling of Christ and, and to the calling for us to, to follow him. And we begin to see that in this passage. It comes at a time when Jesus is quite popular. Uh, in fact, we don't know how many people are following him, but we know that it's a great many because we see from the very beginning it says in Luke 14:25. look at the first words of that verse. It says, now great crowds accompanying him. By this time, Christ had done a lot of different miracles. He had fed 5,000. He had fed 4,000 twice, two different times. We, we see that he's doing these miracles, and people are following out of curiosity, out of you know, this, this desire to, to know more. Some of them are very authentic, and they have very much this compulsion that this is the Messiah. There's others that said, hey, you know, he fed before. I wonder if he's going to feed again tonight. Hey, he did miracles in this person's life. I wonder if he'll do a miracle in my life. And so there's just a whole bunch of curiosity about Christ at this time to the point where he is drawing hundreds, perhaps even thousands. And when we say thousands, I, I'm guessing here because we're not told, but we know that he could attract 5,000 and 4,000. And some would say that that was just the men that if you counted the women and others, that it could have been crowds up to fifteen or 20,000 at times. We, we don't know. 
Obviously, it wasn't super important because he doesn't give us a number here. There's not a need to know the exact number. But we are told that great crowds accompanied him. But look at the rest. Verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Not a lot of gray in this. <laughs> Pretty black and white. He comes out, and these are not what we usually typically think of really Christ-like, you know, Jesus is your best friend kind of words. Instead of something that brings unity, it seems, on the surface at least, that this is quite divisive. Hey, unless I'm number one, and he uses words that is quite expressive here, unless you hate these people that normally we would love and that we would be commanded to love. And, and so we look at this and, and we begin to say, okay, Christ, what's the point here? Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Rather than a promise of comfort, Jesus spoke of things here that make us very uncomfortable. I mean, when you read verse 25 and 26, doesn't it present a little bit of at least a question in your mind? What does he mean when he says that you have to hate your mother and father and then you and hate your wife and, and hate your children? If you've been in the church long enough, you're going, well, Bobby, what he means is that there's a priority. And you've heard sermons on this before and you realize that he's not saying an actual hate and you would be correct. And yet, Jesus never misspoke. There was never a word that Jesus spoke that was, you know, man, I wish I would have said this instead of that. You and I have that all the time. You and I live that daily. Oh, I wish I would have used this word instead of that word. Jesus, I don't believe, ever had that. There was never a time that he says, you know, if I could live that moment over again, I would have said it this way instead of that way. And so when he's talking to this crowd, knowing that Christ is perfect in every way, that he is not sinful, he doesn't have regret like you and I would have regret. He says exactly what he wants to. And he uses the words there that are quite aggressive, maybe even offensive to many of us as we would hear those. When we hear that on the surface. Rather than a promise of freebies, a lot of people, oh, okay, is he going to feed again 5,000? Is there going to be loaves and fishes tonight? Instead of the freebies, he's saying, no, this is actually going to cost you something. Now, right there, there's a part of me in my theology that has to say, okay, time out. And no point in time is Christ saying that you have to earn your salvation. Number one, none of us could ever do that. You could never be good enough. You would have to be perfect. And we know that we are not. We are born in sin, and we have this sin nature. So none of us will ever achieve this walk with Christ because of our own ability to walk with him. So what he's saying here is not that, okay, uh, you do this and you can follow me and you earn your salvation. This is not a salvation passage talking about salvation with Christ. This is a discipleship passage talking about following Christ. And I need to make that distinction there because I don't want anybody to leave and go, okay, unless I do these things, in other words, Christ has put this heavy weight upon my shoulders that unless I hate Christ, all these other relationships, and pick him as priority, then I can't be saved. No, salvation is free. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by the grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Folks, you cannot buy it, you cannot earn it, and you cannot bargain for it. This is not a bargaining chip of Christ. Going, okay, here's what I will give to you if you do this for me. None of this is happening in this passage because it is not a salvation passage. Talking about salvation, it is a discipleship. Now, why is that important? Because all these people are out there following him. And there would be a lot. If you polled that, I, I don't know what the results would be, but maybe 80% would have said, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. Maybe 90%, maybe 100% of them said, all the, you know, we're not just here out of curiosity. We actually want to follow Christ. We don't know what that percentage would be, but it must have been a pretty high percentage. Because what Christ does here, he draws a line. Just as he does in the Sermon on the Mount. At those crucial times of his ministry, when he's revealing himself, is revealing who he is, that he attracts a lot of people. And at those times that he is the most attractive to people, that he says, okay, I want to make sure that you know why I'm here. And I'm not here to give you fish and bread. I'm not here to do this. I'm not here just to get, make your lame uh, leg come back to life and you can walk again, or that the blind can see. I will do all those things, but this is not my purpose. My purpose is to give you life where you did not have life, to bring you into union with a Holy Father that you could never attain in your own ability. Christ always focused, always focused. And yet, these people out there were not in focus. They were curious. And they were following. And so he puts a kind of a line in the sand. And he says, while salvation is free, discipleship, following Christ, is quite costly. Jesus was never one to, um, to play one of those sides or the other. When it was salvation, he just told it simple truth. I'm the Messiah. I'm the only way to the Father. He never kind of did any language that would make us think that there was any other way except for his word that we would have salvation. And there's nothing that Jesus ever said or did in his ministry that would lead us away from this thought that salvation is free. But he also never led us to a place where he would say that discipleship, truly following Christ, would be comfortable or that it would not be costly. Like he said, does just the opposite. He says, you want to follow? And he would welcome following. He said, I want you to understand what you're getting into. That this is not, Jesus was not a bait and switch salesman, guys. He, he doesn't promise you one thing, and then when you get there, he, he kind of gives something else. Jesus very much He's not just giving away tickets to heaven. It's called into a life. And this life is following him. He calls us to have peace with a holy God. This is the peace that he wants us to have. This is the comfort that he does want us to have. To know that even in our sin, that as we come to him and we confess our sins and we trust the work that he has done, that we stand right with this very holy God that we just sang about. Now, guys, we could preach a lot of different things, but that is the crux of Genesis to Revelation. This is the story of the Bible, and this is where Jesus kept his ministry. He never tried to say, okay, let me teach you everything there is to know about marriage. He never, in his attempt in those three years, said, let me teach you everything there is to know about Christian parenting. 
He never said, let me teach you everything there is to know about all of morality. If anything, he just kind of reduced it down. He said, okay, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? And he kind of just spits out, you know, in one phrase, one thought kind of process. He says, this is going to capture. You do this, and you will fulfill all the commandments. Christ always centers in on bringing salvation to lost men. And this whole idea of more of him, less of me, is not a call to salvation. It is a call to discipleship. That doesn't mean if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that he's not welcoming, that he's not made provision for you through Christ. But, but this whole idea, John the Baptist knows Christ. This is not salvation for John the Baptist. He has trusted this message. And now he is following Christ. And this whole more of him, less of me, it's discipleship, folks. It's not salvation. Salvation isn't something that you evolve into. Well, you know, I started going to church. I started doing a couple things and being a better person. And I just think that one day, if I keep on this trajectory, seems like an upward trajectory, if I just kind of extrapolate it out, I think heaven's at the end. This is not the Christian life. This is not the gospel. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He says, I'm the only way to that life. But once he calls us into that life, folks, please understand this. He does say, this is really not going to be really comfortable. It's going to be quite costly. And that's when we get this teaching that he gives us here. He said that we are to grow and mature. Just in case you're saying, well, I, mean, I don't know about this whole, you know, evolving, you know, salvation is not evolving. Discipleship is evolving. The Apostle Paul, he said, hey, you were babies, but now that you've been walking for Christ, you should be walking like what? Like adults now. Look all the way throughout the New Testament and you will see an evolving, a maturing process that happens in the life of the believer. It's not just ticket to heaven, then we go off and do what we want to do. So this is the high call of Christ. This is what he's talking about. That's the context of this. And the first thing that he begins to say as he brings us into this, uh, uh, to a, a step of obedience, is he says it's a change in our priorities. Look again at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It is foolish for us to have uh, this as kind of a signing a pact. This is not, he's not putting a piece of paper in front of us and saying, okay, do you hate your family? This is not what it means. It's a change of priority. We naturally love our family. We're naturally drawn to love mom and dad. We're naturally drawn to, to love a house I mean, a, a spouse, a, a husband or a wife. We're naturally drawn to love our children. And very naturally, these are the priorities of our life. Would you not say that there's a natural draw, that this is the priorities of your life? Family? And so what he's saying here isn't that we would have this hate. I know he uses this word, but he's not saying, he's saying, look, you change your priorities. That the call to follow Christ is a call for a total reprioritization of our life in the way that we live. Not a slight adjustment. 
And oftentimes, guys, we want Christianity to be okay. Man, before I was doing some wrong things. But you know now, Jesus is in my heart and I'm doing some right things. I hope you're doing more right things than wrong things if Jesus is in your heart. But understand, this was not the call of Christ, just that we would get a little bit better and a little bit better. It is a total reprioritization of the very foundation of our life. And aren't we kind of naturally leaning toward the family being the foundation of our life? I mean, I know I'm a natural man. My wife, my kids. I know where my natural heart goes to. He says, now that you have this supernatural, I want to do a supernatural work, and I want to be first and foremost in your life. And he takes those things that are most precious to us, those things that we would naturally prioritize the most, and he says, okay, I I want you to choose me over them. Here's the deal, though, guys. You might say, you know, I don't like this passage. I don't like that Christ has called me to love him more than than my own spouse or my kids or my parents. Here's the deal that Christ gives you. By loving Christ more, your family does not get less. Think about it. You love Christ with all your heart, your wife does not get less. Husband, I promise you. By loving Christ more and He's the priority of your life, your kids do not get less. They get more. See, here, here's the, the part that we have to understand. He uses very dramatic language because this is, this is very dramatic. This is very crucial. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about following Him. He says, look, I, I want to rearrange the very foundation, the very thing that you build your whole life around. Notice that He didn't say, I want you to love the church and going to church more. I want you to love religious things and spiritual things more. No, he, he puts all the focus on himself. This is all about that, that walk that we have with him, not just doing good and not just coming to church. Folks, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. Well, my life was kind of distant and everything. I was just kind of doing what I want to, but I started going to church and I'm a better man for it. And I'm glad. Please don't hear. I'm not trying to disparage that. That we're a better person, maybe, because we went to church and learned some more conformity to a morality. But conformity to a morality does not save one. Only Christ saves us. And so this throne, what seems like the harshest words of Christ, just like two weeks ago when he said, get thee behind me, he saves these most harsh and, and sometimes what would seem to be divisive words at the most crucial times. He's got a throng of people around him, a massive crowd, and he says, okay, you, you want to follow me? I don't want to mislead you. Following is not this. This is what it is over here. And he begins to explain it. Look at verse 28 through 30. He gives two illustrations here. Christ often would do that. Not just one illustration, he would kind of point to if there was purpose. In Luke chapter 15, when he talks about this reckless love that we have sung about in the last couple of weeks, he talks about this love that would leave the 90 and 9 and come after the one wayward sheep, right? But he didn't stop there. He told another story that we're going, okay, that sounds really similar about this lady who lost some coins and she turns her house upside down until she finds that lost coin. But he didn't stop there. 
He tells one more story about this lost son and the father waiting for him to come back and embracing him when he comes back. Jesus often told one story, but he often told two or three stories if it was necessary for us to get the full idea. And there's really an important part of this second story. Listen to the first one first. Verse 28 through 30. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, tower here could be barns, it could be a multi-level structural house, you know, a big house. Uh, that word was used in, in a lot of different purposes, but you're building something for your life. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Quick question, quick poll. Are you a starter or a finisher? How many of you are really good at starting? How many of you are better at finishing? So we have more starters than finishers? Isn't it amazing? I mean, you go to my house right now, and there's five or six projects that have been started. Ask my wife, and she'll say, but he hasn't finished one yet, you know. <laughs> yeah. So we're great starters, but, but here is Jesus emphasizing the start or the finish in this story. It's just finishing. In front of him. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of minds and hearts and souls that are for him. He says, guys, you know, y'all are pretty good at starting. You want to follow me? Let me tell you about finishing. Tell you about finishing with me. Because he says, that, that's, that's really the, the secret. A lot of people start, but not everybody finishes. Starting is not nearly as challenging as finishing. Would you agree? So he puts his emphasis there. Jesus shows the foolishness of starting to build a tower, a house, and not being able to finish. It's foolish because it accomplishes nothing in the end. And this is the truth he's conveying here. I said, just because you start with me, because you follow me, I'm concerned about your ending. I'm concerned about where you're going to spend eternity. Not that there was two or three months in your life or two or three years in your life or two or three decades in your life that you're a pretty good gal or you're a pretty good guy. This is not the concern of Jesus Christ. The concern of Jesus Christ is where will you spend eternity? Well, Bobby, you're sounding like an old evangelist now. We're good. Okay? Because that was the ultimate question of Jesus. This is the ultimate place where he wasn't a life coach saying here's how you navigate the next three years of your life. He says here's how you spend eternity with the Father who made you. And so he focuses there and he, and he points out here that it's foolish that people would walk by and say, yeah, oh Jim, yeah, he started, but he didn't finish. Then he tells another story that on the surface may look like it's just another story, just another way to illustrate the same principle. But it comes with the nuance. See if you can pick out the nuance in this second story. Verse 31 and 32. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. 
In one way, is this an illustration of, hey, it would be foolish, just like the first one. But there's a nuance there. Does anybody pick up the nuance in this second story that really wasn't part of the first story? Do you? Okay, yes, but what preceded that? You're, you're on the right track. Joe? The first one was a choice. The first one is kind of just this free choice that is being made. Uh, Okay, should I build or should I not build? I think I'll build. The second one, hear this very closely. Have ears to hear, okay? Because this could be considered very theologically wrong if if you don't get this. The The first one is a free choice. The second one is a forced choice. Bobby, how is it a forced choice? What do you mean that God forced us into a choice? It's a forced, forced choice because look at the words. It says, when he comes against him. And that's where you were going, Q. It looks like you know, that he comes to terms of peace because this king is coming against him. It's not just that he's out there, okay, do I go to war or not? No, this king is coming against him with how many men? 20,000. And how many does this king have? 10,000. And Jesus is saying, okay, isn't this kind of foolish to try to think that your 10,000 is going to go up against 20,000 and be successful? And just as Q said, he goes out and he says, hey, I think I'm going to make peace. <laughs> this would be the wise thing to do here. This would be smart, knowing that I am outnumbered two to one. I really don't have a chance of winning this, and so I'm going to make peace with this one. And that way is a forced choice. Now, please do not hear me saying that, that somehow um, we're forced into a choice of Christ. But in a way, we are. These people, this crowd that surrounded Christ, were following him. And had Christ made declaration of his purpose previously, had he told them what, what, he was, what his ministry was about, He's made known that he's the Messiah. He's made known that he's come to save the world. He has not hidden that. And so he's drawn a line in the sand. And even though this is a discipleship and not a salvation message, he very much is trying to say, okay, guys, if a king had 20,000 men and you had 10,000 men, would it not be the wise thing to go out there and have peace with this one? You see that Jesus is extending to this crowd that is curious. Okay, guys, if you want to follow me, it's all about making peace with this bigger king. And I'm the only way you can make that peace. He came to bring peace to us. He came to make sure that we finished well. How foolish it would be that we would get in a war and then decide that we were not able to win. Is this not the dilemma of man? Bottom line, guys, somebody is going to be on the king of your heart. Somebody will be the king of your heart in your life. It could be yourself. It could be your family. You can so cherish your family in such a way that you can even make your family the king of your life. That even feels kind of good because we love our family. And Christ is saying, I'm the only rightful one that, that can sit on the throne room of your life, in your heart and your mind, 
And so I, I will come. And yes, is that kind of a forced choice? Do you have to really settle what you're going to do? See, it's the same thing two weeks ago. When Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And, and they came out with, well, some people say this and some people they say that. And then what did Christ say? Do you remember what Christ said to all the disciples, even though Peter was the one that answered? What did Christ say? Who do you say that I am? Is that a forced choice? Yeah. He asks a question that, that demands an answer. Where do you place me in your life? And what was Peter's response? Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. Jesus, man, you got that right. You got that one right. And yet when they began to tell what the Christ would do, which was not comfortable at all, it was death, Peter says, not on my watch. And that's when those harsh words came out from two weeks ago, get thee behind me, Satan. See how this all incorporates together? We who strive for comfort in life. I, I promise you, God will comfort you in your hurt, in your misery, in your brokenness. But it's not always going to be comfortable. Here he says that he, it really, he says only one can sit on the throne of your life, on your heart and your mind. And he says, that is the place for me. And he's saying, really, if we look at the whole passage, he said it's foolish <laughs> to go any other way. I can only imagine that there are some men and women that all their life have made themselves king of their own lives. They, they filled their lives not necessarily with evil and immorality, but just with their own passions and their own pleasures. Maybe even very kind and gentlemanly in the way that they did that. Never hurt anybody else. And yet there's going to be a time that even that nicest person, like the rich young ruler in the Bible, would come upon a time when they will face a holy God and it will not be their goodness, and it will be not be their kindness. There will only be one thing that makes the difference between, between heaven and, and hell, and that is, did they know this Savior? Salvation, grace alone. This is not a salvation passage. It's a discipleship passage. He said, the cost of following me is high. Verse 35, I'm sorry, verse 33. What's the first two words? So therefore, he, he, again, remember, therefore, it draws a conclusion. I've said this, now I draw a conclusion from what I just stated. So therefore, any one of you that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does that seem harsh? I mean, it just really, does it, does it seem really kind of, does it seem mean-spirited? could be. If the trade-off wasn't life-changing and life-giving, the trade-off, if somebody's going to give you less than what they take from you, then it's really evil kind of mean. But is Christ offering more or less by you dying to self and living the Christ life? Is he, is he wanting to give you more or less? When he says you have to hate your mother and father, is he making you a better son or daughter or a or lesser son or daughter. When he says you have to hate your wife or, or your husband, is he making you a better, is he offering you to be a better husband and a better wife? See, it's, it's all in the exchange. It's not a bait and switch. Uh, you only thought you were going to get this, but what I'm really going to give you, I mean, anybody who's ever bought a car, 
unless it's a brand new one. And even then it can be. But if anybody who ever bought a used car, it's a, it's a risky proposition, isn't it? Man, never had a problem with it at all. You know, I've never had to do a thing to it. And then a week later, the engine blows, this, you know, and you're just like, okay. <laughs> That's not a good exchange, okay? There's a lot of regret in that. But when Jesus says, any of you who does not renounce, that word renounce is a very, um, it's a very strong word in the Greek. Uh, it's a very uh, funny word to me. Strong's Dictionary. Actually, uh, in, in my Strong's Dictionary, it says to, to say farewell, to bid adieu. When I read bid adieu, I laughed. I was going, so, so what does Jesus say? Okay, you need to bid adieu to your old way of your old priorities. You have to bid adieu. You have to say farewell to that. And I introduce you to this other way. It's a call to total surrender. We think that this isn't really Jesus being gentlemanly, and, and, and I would say, folks, it's the most gentlemanly thing that has ever been offered to you because there is no bait and switch. There is not, okay, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, and I hope that I come out the, the victor in that and have the better trade. This is the most gentlemanly thing that we see in Christ, that he says, okay, you follow me with your whole heart and your whole head and your whole life, and I will give you life abundantly, and I will give you life eternally. That's what he offers. More than you could ever have. And he takes from us what? He takes our sin. He takes our, our defeats. He takes all the, those, the weeks that we just didn't do good. And he takes all of that and he gives us the hope of the gospel. Verse 27, we go back. He calls us to die. Next week, we're going to finish out this series and, and say, what, what does it really mean to die for Christ? What, what does that look like in everyday life? When he calls us to die. It's one thing to say, okay, hate your mother and father, and we can kind of play with words there, make that sound a little bit better. When he says, I want you to die. And for John the Baptist, that's exactly what it was, a call to die. What does Christ do? And we'll come back and we'll end the series next week with that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, we live in a day of uh, sometimes that can be very challenging to, to think that maybe Christianity is just a, a slight turn to the left or a slight turn to the right from the life that we previously had. And Father, your word dispels all that, Father. It, it, it contradicts any thought that is just a slight adjustment to the, fire, the former life that we had, Father. No, you, you call us into a new life. You said the old things are passed away and all things become new. Father, part of this newness is not just forgetting the sins of the past, but, Father, a call that we would live for another king now when we have been so naturally bent to make that king ourselves. That even if it was doing good, that we would still do good for our pleasure and for our passion. Father, I thank you that you have provided Christ for, Father, there is no other way that we could have rightness with you, that, Father, we could have unity with you, that, Father, that we could not just get to heaven one day, but, Father, that we could have peace in life. And yet, Father, the minute you give us this peace with you, 
and full justification of our sin through the finished work of Christ. Father, you call us into this tumultuous life, this life that is not always comfortable. And so, Father, I thank you for the gentlemanliness of Christ. That he just called it what it was. And as aggressive as his wording is, as heavy as it sounds, that, Father, that Jesus loved us enough that the, the role of discipleship, the, the, the walk of discipleship is one where you have to be king of our life. So Father, when we sing songs like I Surrender All, when, when in honesty, Father, if we were being as honest with you as you are with us, we should really be singing I Surrender Some. So, Father, as we sing this last song today, as we would sing that we really do surrender all, Father, we are not perfect. Thank you that your grace, you know that, Father, and your grace is sufficient for us. Father, hear our hearts plead that more and more we want to be like your son. And less and less, Father, we want to be like our former self. Father, we want him to be king. And, Father, we want to surrender the throne of our life to him. And so, Father, that, that's our passionate plea this morning. This is, Father, the, our, our passionate cry out to you. Will, will you help us to surrender all? All to Jesus, I surrender. All to thee, I give. We love you and we thank you, Father. For it is your spirit, Father, that allows us to even have that thought that we would not want to be our own king that we would this day surrender all to a greater king. We love you and we pray in the name of this greater king, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.